I'm Josh Cooperman, and this is Convo by Design, recorded in the Living Kitchen Studio. Let me set the stage for you. I- I'm sitting in the Hoffa Gallery on La Cienega Boulevard, surrounded by white walls and beautiful works by local and international artists. This is the perfect setting for an interview, and what makes it that much more special is the fact that I had been looking forward to this conversation for quite some time before it took place. It was with Dakota Jackson. Yes, Dakota Jackson is a legendary furniture designer. Yes, Jackson also mastered the art of brand partnerships as as the one he has nurtured for quite some time with Steinway and Sons. But he's also a masterful conversationalist. Because of this, I knew that I was going to be tested, and I was really looking forward to it. And Jackson didn't disappoint. This is a conversation about so much more than furniture and design. This podcast affords me the latitude to explore new avenues with creatives, to really see what lies beneath the work and where it all comes from. Dakota Jackson is a masterful creative with a background in the art of magic, theater, illusion, and craft. He, he's also a, a true artist with a legendary story to match his body of work. We talk about the desk he crafted for John Lennon at Yoko Ono's request. You'll hear about the days of Warhol, Diane von Furstenberg, and his participation in the American art furniture movement. I, I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. It was a challenge, and it flew. It was amazing, and I enjoyed it, and I hope you do too. This is designer, artist, magician, and maker, Dakota Jackson. Convo by Design is presented by Snyder Diamond, a family-owned and operated company serving the Southern California design and architecture community for over 70 years. 70 years of fantastic service and amazing products, like those from Sub-Zero, Wolf, and Cove. Another family-owned and operated company serving designers for over 70 years with innovative design and stunning good looks that all work together seamlessly. Like the Pro 48 Refrigeration, it's an absolute game changer. Sculpted metal design that is a culinary secret weapon. Dual refrigeration that properly separates humid refrigeration and dry for frozen and convenience foods and keeps everything fresher longer. This is an aggressive design statement from handles to hinges with every detail considered and sculpted to absolute perfection, including the glass door option, which is just gorgeous. Now, pair the Pro 48 with a Wolf vacuum seal drawer, the ultimate food preservation companion. See how this works? The folks at Sub-Zero, Wolf, and Cove work tirelessly to give designers and architects the products they need to design amazing kitchens. Kitchens that allow homeowners to be the absolute best they can be in the kitchen of their dreams. The kitchen that you designed. And right now, thanks to the Grand Kitchen event, how about three years of extra protection or a $1,000 rebate? These offers are only for a limited time and conditions apply, so take control and get all the details. To see the full line of Sub-Zero, Wolf, and Cove products, go to any of the three Los Angeles area Snyder Diamond showrooms. You can also see the Living Kitchen in the Pasadena and Santa Monica Snyder Diamond showrooms. I was excited to meet you. I love your work. And I was excited to hear that you're coming back to LA with a showroom at the Pacific Design Center. Why? Okay, I got a lot of whys for you. Why now? 
why LA? Why the Pacific Design Center? Why? Uh, that's a good question, why? And it's a question we always ask ourselves. And if we ask that question ourselves too often, then we uh, might question it, question the why itself. And I'm not the kind of person who questions why. Uh, I just determined that it's something that I want to do that uh, is going to add excitement again, uh, another component of excitement. Are we on at this point? <laughs> it's funny, I get this all the time. So my recording style is very different because I am a standalone producer. So what I do is I record the videos because everyone wants to see what you're doing and what you're up to. Uh -huh. But I don't run the entire video. I run cut. segments, uh -huh. I, so I cut through and I edit uh -huh. things that we talk about. The, in, the audio, our entire audio conversation runs on the podcast. So you'll okay. hear the entire audio episode on, on Convo okay. by Design. So I understand it can be a little disconcerting when the, ho the host gets up and starts walking over to the camera. Sorry about that. <laughs> it's a, it's a, call it an, an unorthodox recording style. Okay. Un an unorthodox, unorthodox. An unorthodox recording style. Okay. Yeah, it's the... Uh, it's, it's so in other words, keep talking. Keep talking. <laughs> okay. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I, look, I started this because I, I love the stories behind the brands of design. My, my background's in broadcast, and I don't feel like the storytelling has always been the forefront of design brands. And so when I get an opportunity to speak with someone like you, I love the history. I love the creativity behind the brand. I love the brand story because brands aren't easy to build, especially eponymous ones. They're easy to build? Uh, they're not feel? easy to build, especially eponymous ones where you're building it based on you, your name, who you are and what you've done. I, I, the notion of brand is something that um, I've had issue with, and I want to be careful about issue. It doesn't mean that uh, I get riled and I rear back, but uh, for me, a brand grew out of what, if we call it the product, uh, was, and the identity existed first with what was created. And it then led to the visibility of the company that made it. Now, that's not to say that uh, in any field there was never an awareness of who made it, uh, but what stood out first was the quality, the dedication, the, uh, the period of time that uh, the development went on before it began to gain notoriety. Uh, brands that have existed a long time, and I've always been fascinated with brands that are 100 years old, 150 years old, even, or companies, let's call them companies more than brands, um, how they existed, how it continued from generation to generation, how it went through the highs and lows of uh, geopolitics, of uh, economics, of uh, notions and questions and the infighting, the interstices of what went on between families, 
Now, my company is, uh, I'm entering actually my uh, sixth decade. And it's something, so that puts me at at least 50 years of being in my business. In fact, uh, 2020 will be the 50th year of the company. And so that puts me right on the cusp. And when I began, uh, there's the why I began, and then there's the beginning. Uh, the companies that were modeled for me would have been, uh, and still is, Steinway Piano, because it's, it's almost like what uh, Bill Clinton said to uh, the senior Bush, it's the economy, stupid. Uh, I always looked at it and said, you know, it's the product, stupid, you know. Uh, that's what counts, and that's, that's where it belongs, is in the authenticity the, the sincerity, the commitment, uh, being prepared for the battle, the battle of creating standards, of maintaining standards, and that's what rings through. Uh, you can have in interesting personalities attached to it, and generally anybody who has that level of perseverance and vision and determination and stupidity uh, connected with it is uh, is a story themselves you know uh, that point came up before about why um, the why is always a big question and I could never answer it uh, fully but I had started a piano company when I was 29 and uh, actually it was in formation for about three or four years and the determination was because I wanted to be an industrialist and the piano became my target. Uh, not because I was a musician, a trained musician, which I am, uh, but by training before that, uh, my family are magicians. And uh, I was very intrigued with the idea of the um, the industrialist and the industrialist truly holding power and I felt that something I had experienced before that good ideas create jobs they create communities in the past they were industry towns industry towns never no longer existed and so this idea of becoming a great piano maker somehow uh, fixated me and so the question is why and somebody once asked me that and I said, why? Because I could, and nobody told me not to. And uh, it led to all sorts of issues, um, including unions, including uh, just, just that idea of what does it mean to work with a large group of people? What does it mean to organize a large group of people? What does it mean to get them all if not excited, uh, it's, but all focused, all speaking the same language. Uh, and you can't control all of that all the time. So that very thought of how do you move a force of people ahead in order to uh, build, sustain uh, a vision. And the piano was my victim let's say, or I became the piano's victim at that point. 
uh, again, I think it was just about a kind of heroicism and a skewed heroicism. Uh, for many, the thought was, and it's always been said, you know, you have to think outside the box. And my feeling has always been, I'd do anything to get inside the box. I would do anything. So it's interesting you mention that because we, I've got so many questions now just from that alone, thinking outside the box, yet from a family that worked inside the box. So you come from a family of musicians. Were you expected? Magicians. Ma magicians. Yes. Were you expected to follow in the, in the family business? Uh, my training was that. Uh, from a very, very early age. My father was a very, very impressive man, uh, both as a child, a father could be to any child, but the majesty of my father on stage was just breathtaking. And I began to work professionally uh, probably prior to 10 years old. And uh, there were many twists and turns to it. Uh, by the time I was 14 or 15, I was working with a legendary clown named Emmett Kelly, and uh, who was associated with Barnum Bailey. Now, Emmett himself was Emmett Kelly Jr. Uh, but he was a grown man, and we would perform for uh, organizations like Muscular Dystrophy. And he's a man who would come out or the clown would come out and there would be a spotlight and he'd be constantly trying to sweep the spotlight. And I would come out first as this magician uh, starting to perform and then Kelly would come out behind me and was sweeping the stage. And I would think that they were finding me funny, but the point was, or at least I was purporting to find me funny and then suddenly I turn around and it's like here's some guy sweeping and it's those kind of moves like you know and it it engenders a kind of laughter uh, and there would be two or three thousand people in the audience interestingly uh, my father would say hey look I booked you into the Statler Hilton it's going to be for muscular dystrophy there'll be about 3,000 people there you're going to be working with Emmett Kelly and I go what you did what and uh, he'd say yeah and you're gonna go up there because I'm telling you you're gonna go up there and you're gonna be great and you're gonna be great because I'm telling you you're gonna be great and what do you mean you're not going to do it? And I say, only condition is you're not here. So this guy Jackson is a guy who to this day goes, I what? And uh, it turns into, you're going to do it because I'm telling you you're going to do it and because you're going to be great. Now, it's one thing to say that, but the key behind it is training, discipline, and uh, the, the element of self-critique. And these are not easily learned. These are not easily developed. They take time. And just, just one more point around that. So when you go back to this notion of brand, uh, a brand must be earned. And it must be earned by extreme discipline and time place. Not the 10,000 hours. I don't care about that just the desire and the discipline. Uh, totally agree with you. And, and I think it's, it's interesting too, and I'm curious, 
that element of, of discipline, self-awareness, self-discipline, did, how did that affect you? How does that affect you now? Because in essence, you're, you're pretty much doing the same thing. You're, you are, I don't want to say you're an entertainer, but you are still a public performer. The, the medium is different, the work is different, but in essence, you, you, you create a product, you, you create a performance, you put it out there for public consumption, and you have to be disciplined in, in the work that you do. I'm, I'm curious, is, is, the, is the experience the same? And then backing up a little bit more, when did you go from, from being a magician's son to being a designer furniture maker? When did the performance change? Uh, there's been performance in the traditional and the non-traditional sense of performance uh, for a long time. By saying non-traditional performance, we're talking about the realm of performance art. Uh, which I became involved with in the very early 70s. I also danced with members of the Grand Union that came out of, uh, oh my goodness, not out, of, not out of Graham, but the fellow who just followed Graham. Uh, but I danced with uh, Trisha Brown and Laura Dean and was connected with Yvonne Rayner and a number of others. Uh, and you come back to that why. And the why is because it fascinated me, because it was a period of time where these things could be done. It was a period of time, and I'm going to back around and come into your question. It was a period of time of cheap rent that perhaps the same thing, you know, existed, and I'm sure it did exist here, uh, where, you know, the area that, let's say, John Baltasari came out of and the idea that the very spaces that people were living in they were working in it was their performance space their lives took place in these spaces and it was pretty much balanced between men and women who had these spaces everybody was the captain of their space and the cheap rent allowed them to focus on their work and so coming out of living in a loft made it possible for me to experiment in different ways. Uh, again, uh, Merce Cunningham was uh, the, the group that started the Grand Union had come largely out of Merce Cunningham and John Cage. Uh, and, but having a loft allowed me to experiment in many different ways. And I moved into a loft, but again, I was a professional magician, and I was entertaining even in the Catskill Mountains, and, uh, but my hair kept getting longer and longer. And uh, it was before the days of, a little before Doug Henning, and a little bit before the redefinition of what a contemporary magician could be. But I had spent a long time on the road, and I was less interested in the actual performance of magic than the tenets of magic. The illusion of spontaneity, the uh, illusion of infinite possibility, the, and most importantly, the illusion of normalcy. So when I discovered that I could build because I moved into a loft and the space had to be built, I immediately became involved with this transposition of experience. Uh, I would say that as a musician, I'm a capable musician. As a magician, I'm talented. My father was 
uh, beyond gifted. He was consummate. Uh, but when I discovered building, as a dancer, it was a period I moved through. I was also with Cafe La Mama, uh, working with a Japanese troupe of avant-garde uh, actors named the Tokyo Kid Brothers. Tokyo Kid Brothers. And we were doing Japanese rock opera, a version of West Side Story, but it took place on the Coney Island boardwalk. And um, uh, even got uh, uh, reviewed by Clive Barnes as a very sad and unhappy magician. And uh, so there were lots of different experiences, but when I discovered building, I knew I was gifted and it just took over and I didn't care what I built I just wanted to build couple of things there we wanted to unpack you didn't care so when you get a review with words like sad like what a like review? sad a review was sad so they don't they don't like your 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 rendition of the play did you do you care what other people think whether it's Magic, music, or furniture? Uh, uh, two things. Uh, I like criticism. Do you? I, well, critique, criticism. Uh, by criticism, I mean uh, uh, informed criticism. Um, it's, it's something in the design world, and I want to be very careful with it, uh, that doesn't truly exist, that never really existed in past years, uh, going all the way back to the first articles that I might have had in New York Magazine in 1974 or 75 or 76. Um, design was never covered in a serious, in the serious manner in which architecture would have been. Uh, which was much more historical based, certainly in the 60s, uh, you know, with um, semiotics, constructive, uh, structuralism, deconstructivism, Derrida, Baudrillard, uh, and the various names that came into it from European uh, philosophy. Uh, there was so much more, and there was such a rich environment for uh, discourse and this kind of discourse didn't really exist in design. Uh, Clive Barnes critiquing me as a sad magician was because I was a sad magician and that was the goal, so I didn't take it that way. Um, and I've never really met up against the kind of criticism or critique or discourse that I would really like to see go on in design. It has become more so in past years, but in my early development years, no, it didn't exist. So it's absolutely true, and it's fascinating to me. Why do you think the same level of criticism does not exist as in, say, architecture or art? Why? Oh, no, art is a whole different area. Art, uh, art is an institution in itself that has so many different levels from the work of the artist, from the history, from the tradition, from its relationship to architecture, from its relationship to the church. Not to say that design doesn't have those very same things. Uh, to the high stakes involved in art, to the, uh, the art market itself, uh, there are so many areas there uh, to be written about uh, that there is 
it's as non-institutional as art may be, uh, or of, as avant-garde as art may be considered, it is an institution in the way that it's developed, uh, that it's grown. And of course, we could, we could argue that point. Architecture, uh, and this, this can open up a whole other area again, uh, that discourse, that study uh, on so many different levels happens on a, uh, you know, on a university level, on a, again, an institutional level that to enter architecture, you are beginning to be taught to think in different ways, and oftentimes by very heroic people. Architects view themselves that way. Uh, uh, you know, uh, it's interesting because uh, I'm reading a book on Oscar Schlemmer, not, excuse me, not on Oscar Schlemmer, on Gropius who founded uh, the Bauhaus and the struggles, the absolute struggles that they went through trying to keep that organization going. And I know that well because uh, my wife, Rosalie Goldberg, has founded Performa, which is a performance art-based organization that has achieved international recognition, but I know what it's like every day to run it. My point partially being that when uh, the situation changed in Europe, uh, when uh, the rise of Hitler, the rise of fascism, uh, the diaspora that was created. Architects came here and for whatever they've been through, on one hand, they also became the president of, or excuse me, the head of architecture, the dean of architecture, as Gropius did at, uh, at uh, Harvard, and Mies van der Rohe became the head of architecture at IIT. And uh, there was something heroic that was built into the architect and the furniture designers and perhaps the interior designers, uh, although so did the architects, they worked in a very intimate way with families. Uh, they often would have a patron, a single patron. And for instance, for, uh, uh, Pierre Chirot, who worked very closely with the Delsas family, and they were an interesting family, uh, I believe a Jewish family, and when they had to flee uh, Germany, Chirot uh, lost his biggest clients. Uh, the same with Jean-Michel Franck. Uh, the, the same with, well, uh, Ruhlmann kind of went in another direction, but those designers who, and interior designers who were Jewish had to flee Europe, and many of them wound up committing suicide. And this bugged me. I don't, I don't mean to say it as, 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 as a point of laughing, not at all, but the idea of like, what was the Constitution? of Eileen Gray? What was the constitution of all of these Pierre, uh, Pierre Saunier, Sornay, Sue Mare? Uh, why did they disappear? Why did the architects prevail? And, you know, we can ask this question, why did Le Cabousier prevail? Uh, and yet, these designers who existed in a very precious world, 
a world that didn't necessarily come out of the tradition of an institutional education, but more of a, um, I don't want to use the word technical, but you usually worked for the house of another fashion designer. So it was vocational. Um, they saw themselves in another way and they weren't protected. And when they came to this country, there was really, that system didn't exist for them. They existed out of time. They were in a way like uh, artists of a floating world and the world didn't see them in the same way. But the architects, because of an, uh, an institutional background, were able to flourish. So now we go into what is the personality of the architect versus what is the personality of that type of person who's interested in either furniture design or interior design. And my, part of my goal was to become an industrialist because industrialists hired architects. In fact, I hired Peter Eisenman to build my first showroom out here in LA. I don't want to say it with that sense of, huh? But, uh, you know, I wanted to be the one who came up with ideas, created jobs, and engaged other people at very high levels in terms of projects and discourse. It's a very long answer. It, it, it is, and there, but again, it, it's a little frustrating because each one of your answers has so much to unpack, and I don't have time to unpack everything, but I think it's fascinating. You touched on a couple of points that I wanted to go back to. The industrialist, I think, is really interesting because many creatives don't envision themselves that way. They don't want to be the industrialist. They want to be the individual. They want to be the in individual who, who creates, which you've, you've done. Um, and, and I wanted to go back to the work itself. Specifically, something that's been on my mind since I first found out that we were scheduling this was the fact that you, that you grew up in a family of magicians, that you're a magician yourself. And the craft of magic is built around, in some cases, unless it's sleight of hand, it's built around tools and, and fascinating furniture. And so I think it's really interesting, some of the furniture that you've built, like when you're working with Yoko Ono and you're building a, a table for John Lennon that has hidden compartments. That did, did, did magic influence the way you view furniture as, <clears throat> excuse me, as not, maybe something that's not purely utilitarian, but, or, or just to be functional, or just to be seen, but something that can have different elements to it and leading into sort of the art furniture movement, did that affect you that way? And then as you go to work for Steinway or working with Steinway, having been a piano maker, I'm wondering how all of these things came together to influence and, and later be the direct result of the product that you created. Mm -hmm. uh I did build magic illusions uh, before I built furniture. I consider magic to be a realm unto itself where you're talking about paraphernalia. And uh, what intrigued me about that transposition from building magic illusions to building furniture was this element of the portrayal of power that these objects that we surrounded ourselves with 
uh, were imbued with a sense of possibility or a certain hierarchy. Uh, so I began with pieces called Furniture as Deadly Weapons or New Wonders of the World because again I wanted them to be heroic. Uh, the connection between magic and furniture really first began with Yoko, who for John's 34th birthday, they were separated at the time, uh, and uh, wanted a desk that had a number of hidden compartments, or as she described it, more like a Chinese puzzle. I took this on not so much as in the realm of the magician, but in the realm of the, like the watchmaker, to make a precision instrument. And go back to that point about tenets of magic. Magic works only insofar as it maintains the illusion of normalcy. And the illusion of normalcy uh, has to do with, it goes back to choreography in a way. How you move in a purportedly normal or relaxed situation and then how you move in the very same way when as Dylan would say something's happening here something's going hap something's happening and you don't know what it is do you Mr. Jones so that element again within the furniture was the fact that it just simply looked like what it was that it was a desk and it was nothing more than a desk if it had something about it that imbued it with this kind of sense of magical power, it wouldn't have worked. I'll tell you, just to, if I can tell it quickly, um, about, I never asked her why she wanted these compartments. 27 years later, or 37 years later, she came back to me, 25 years after John's death, and she said that this was John's favorite object but she wanted to have it restored to a position where it would be just maintained. It turned out it was restored very poorly, or, or that it was stored very poorly, so we decided to rebuild it, but she asked me to open one of the compartments, and this was 37 years later. There was a 24-year-old boy who built this, and this compartment slides open, and she removes an envelope from it out of which comes a photograph of Yoko from 37 years before, this very beautiful picture of her. And she wanted to have it so that John could keep it in a very special place, even though they weren't living together. And uh, so it took 37 years for that mystery uh, to be solved. Uh, going back to the independent furniture designer, I looked at it, there were no, there really were no furniture or uh, furniture design in this country. It didn't exist. There was no tradition. This was a country of mass production. This was a post-war world where whatever had gone on, whatever uh, Noguchi, or not Noguchi, Nakamichi was working on, whatever uh, any of the other independent designers like Eames and his experimentation, although that did move very quickly into industry, that was gone from this country. Uh, that kind of education that existed either uh, at Cranbrook or at Black Mountain uh, that no longer really existed in a very obvious way. There was no real training for furniture making except as craft. 
And so there was an interesting moment in time where it was almost spontaneous that a certain group of designers, almost as if you were walking backwards and bumped into each other in the dark, suddenly found themselves as what was called studio furniture makers. But I still had this idea of being the industrialist. The studio, the independent furniture maker, the art furniture maker for me was a training ground to understand the craft. But I knew where I was headed was something larger than that. I want to circle back as a dreamer because one of the things that I, I find really, really interesting is these two, these two sides of the conversation. One being the original goal of being an industrialist and the realization of being a dreamer and an artist. I'm trying to figure out in my own mind how the two things can be compatible in an artistic construct because you don't speak like an industrialist. You've done the business side of it successfully. I, I would argue as successfully as the creative side of it. I'm just curious how those two sides work together because you don't see that very often. It's a good question. Um, when I'm in the studio, uh, it is a sacred place. Uh, I have very strict protocols within the studio. Uh, I, um, in terms of how we as designers work, where we even hang our coats, what you can bring to your desk, uh, I, I, I feel that it has to be this very pure space where thought can go on uninterrupted. And in that respect, uh, it is very much a sanctuary. Uh, the door to my office has a prayer room on it, and it either says, I, I can't remember, it says empty, but the other side has a stop sign, and it says in prayer. And um, it's there for anybody in the company who needs those moments alone, but it's, it's not even my office, it's sort of my study. And um, it's not that we walk around in tiptoe, but we're very conscious of one another. We're very conscious of not breaking each other's thought processes. Uh, I don't exist, I exist first with language. Uh, I probably have a visual catalog in my head of tens and tens and tens of thousands of images that go back to, you know, to early childhood. I was trained as a memory artist and uh, as such, images have very strong emotional connections to them. I, uh, they trigger very quickly between a thought, an image. The problem of design though, I don't want to say it, it's about function, but it, it relates to, I guess, I don't even want to be corny, corny about it, but how it's used. It relates to these, just these objects that come as close as you can get them to perfection, you know? Uh, all the rest of it is hell, sheer hell, all the time. Uh, 
you know, getting people to move along with you. You work in a company with people, people have different interests. My commitment is, I know this sounds corny too, is to my clients. I have, I have a moral and an ethical uh, commitment, contract, to deliver to the expectation of people who have put a great deal of faith and anticipation in what I do. And that drives me as much as the idea of purely creating a very pure vision. Which is a perfect segue, I feel, into one of the things I wanted to ask you about is this showroom that you're building in LA. We talk about art. We talk about expectation. We talk about criticism and we talk about um, creating an experience because really the design is experiential it, it really is less about stuff and more about what you do with individual things that's that's the art behind it so when you when you create a space a showroom is nothing more than than a room and it's up to you to define what that is so what's the approach to the showroom what do you want it to be what do you hope it is what where's the magic in this what would you because i i view this as some will say well it's and i've had this conversation with others who will say you know we're putting in a showroom what, what's it going to be oh you know we're going to bring in last year's collection and we're going to add in this year's collection and then we're going to rotate the collection every six months i've got the i'm getting the feeling that that's not what a showroom is to you uh it's uh, it's sort of like the raw and the cooked, I guess. It's there's a there's a connection or an association, and an odd association with the notion of displacement, and the familiar. Uh, uh, you know, one could be one meaning me <laughs> could be criticized for this idea of wanting it to show lifestyle. Um, I still think of these objects as being very independent, as I said, universes unto themselves. I want there to be a sense that when you walk into my space, there's a combination of pristine, of organization, of the awkward moment, the awkward moment between indecision and acceptance, that there is a feeling that is unfamiliar and then you begin to discover within the space objects that have meaning and uh, there's a danger in that because it doesn't immediately spell out ah I can make an entire room around this in this way but I've always looked at my pieces as as independent objects that have grown out of their own trajectories and that over a period of time because there is a constancy in the way I think creates linkages but I want there to be a sense of like when you enter the design studio and uh, there is a very pure element about it that when you enter this space it has elements like the one that I did with Peter Eisenman that makes you stop and there's a debate between the objects within the space and then the space itself. Uh, so 
there's a there's a push that's that moment between indecision and acceptance we never completely resolve but we accept and i feel the best work always has that element i want to be careful with the word tension but that there is some reason why we return to it and we return to it and each time we return to it we discover something else about it it's like something that we've never really seen before or operate in that way or integrate surface function surprise anticipation and the magic still exists in that sense of you know if you think about Fred Astaire if you think about my father walking across the stage if you think about the way your eye moves across a surface the way you begin to discover it uh, all of these points are elements of spontaneity and in that way uh, I can't be like anybody else the space can't be like anybody else's it really has to carry this sense of okay so uh, one conclusion I've come to today is words are very important to you and I've picked up on a couple of things, and I'm convinced that you're not an industrialist, and I'm happy to say that you're not an industrialist, because the world already has enough industrialists, or people who want to be industrialists. What we don't have are enough artists, and we don't have enough magicians, and we don't have enough people who are making magic and creating the experience. One of the things that really bothers me is the retail experience isn't magical anymore. It's purely functional. And I think it's gotten that way because w with the advent of social media, you can go look at whatever it is you want. You can get it online. You can get it from your own living room. You can see it on your own computer, in your own environment. But there's no magic there. There's no experience there. You, you can see items, but you can't see how you are in relationship to those items. So when I hear you talking about you know, relationships as it relates to item and individual for an experience in a showroom. I, I'm excited by that. You're also kind of walking the tightrope. You're putting yourself out there and, <clears throat> excuse me, you're opening yourself up to criticism, which again, it's not something that you shy from. You, you are actually encouraging criticism. You want to hear it. You, you want to have the conversation. I love that. I don't think there's enough of that. I think most people just want to want to see the happy thumbs up emoji, and that's all they want to see. I'm excited by this. I, I I think it's an exciting experience. I think it's it it harkens back to when furniture was allowed to be art, when the art furniture movement starts. You know, Dadaism and pointillism and all of these other new ideas at the time where people really put themselves out there and said, hey, it's, it's wonderful or it's stupid. I don't care. You decide. But this, when you're talking about something that is, that is furniture at an artisan level, the experience has, has faded over the years. And so I'm excited that you're doing this again. And maybe I'm completely overreacting to this. And it's like, no, that's really not the point, Josh. I'm just opening a showroom at the PDC. But I... I feel like it's the former. Am I off base on this? Uh, 
we could say it's Jackson's last stand because uh, <laughs> is that is that what this is uh, in a way I, I look at LA and New York as being a very important axis uh, opposites uh, to a degree, but the appreciation of, of fine design, the, I also uh, believe in something else, which rather than aging out, and of course when people come into the showroom, I, uh, which I'm not present for, and they're curious or they're buying or they're about to buy, I always say, well, how old are they, you know? And, uh, wanting to know if they would get younger and younger I want uh, because all of the great old masters and I consider myself to be a master at this point in time no tongue-in-cheek I deserve it uh, if not for any other reason but having survived 50 years of being in the industry but I I believe in this notion of aging in at a certain point in time people who have the means want to begin to distinguish themselves in ways that are unlike others. And if our industry, my industry, can survive, and that's being very careful on how you construct it, uh, I believe that, I said I believe, but I do believe that uh, there will be those who as they approach 40 and 45 and uh, will plant more permanency in their life and will want to find objects and relationships that distinguish them more on a personal basis and I have got to have faith in that and I do have faith in that that's why I'm committing to the showroom here in LA and I love that you're doing that. And we were talking a little bit before we started recording. I, I believe I told you, I am, I'm a native Angelino. Born and raised, moved around, but always come home. I, I love LA. One of the things that I noticed from the time that I was a kid growing up in the San Fernando Valley, LA was, LA was this opportunity where people would come and have, have a chance to sort of reinvent themselves. Artists, musicians, actors, any, any type of creative performer, designers and architects as well. They could come and they could try new things. And for some reason, this ephemeral nature of the way architecture and design was in the 70s and early 80s, something would come up. Even before that, into the 60s, something would come up. And if it wasn't loved instantly, it, could, it was almost like the, the architectural version of Etch-A-Sketch, LA was. You could just shake it up, it's gone, start again. I feel like what I've seen in the past, <clears throat> call it 15 or 20 years, is this maturation process where LA really is a, a world-class creative city. In, in, all of, in all of the design aspects from architecture to, to interior design, exterior design, the things that they've done with public spaces here in LA are remarkable. And I feel like it's worthy of a type of showroom that you're describing. And I think it's also interesting, the last stand, I, I get the tongue in cheek 
of The Last Stand, and I get the seriousness and the, the legitimacy of the idea. But that begs the question about legacy. What, what is the legacy? What would, you like, what would you like that legacy to be? Uh, I thought you were going to ask another kind of question, but uh, I would like there to be continuity. Uh, I'm not confident that it's going to occur. Um, the legacy, uh, I'm very active in education, and I uh, ran a, a uh, comparative... It was a master class, not a master's degree, but a master class in comparative design studies, which involves social anthropology and social architecture, uh, and looked at a period from 1958 through 1982 as a period of opposition. So that before we would even touch design, we looked at the civil rights movement. We looked at the second, uh, uh, the second uh, uh, level again of feminism. We looked at new wave cinema. We looked at what was going on in architecture, in dance. Uh, we looked at music. We looked at performance. And I was able to tap into, you know, people like Massimo Vignelli who came to teach. And uh, I knew that a lot of these people weren't going to be around for a long time. And I believe that as I continue to teach, and now this fall I'll be teaching at Pratt, that, uh, and the internships, that an important legacy to me is a way of thinking that somewhere in people's heads they go, uh, Jackson would have thought that way or Jackson would have murdered me for that or uh, I learned some things from Jackson even if it was just the confidence to use language and experience together. What happens to my company? Uh, I don't know. They're very complex to run. Uh, a company that is constantly specializing in a combination of state-of-the-art and artisanship and the type of expression that I, that I have. I, I don't know what the future is except unless you, you can it in some way. And, you know, I study the fashion world a lot basically because I just, I love the craft of fashion. Uh, and uh, it still exists in certain places. Uh, I'm, I'm frankly not optimistic about uh, legacy in terms of the company carrying on. I like to be optimistic about my role as a teacher and affecting people's lives that way. That's not what an industrialist would say. No, but I was a... Uh, the, the industrialist to me was a little bit tongue-in-cheek. It was the no, late no, no. 60s. I, I, no, I totally get it. But I think, and I, I, I appreciate the time, and I, I could actually, I could talk to you all day long. Um, but what I think is really interesting is the, 
I was listening to a conversation with Bunny Williams who got mentorship during her time at Parish Hadley. And she learned from that both the things that she loved and the things that she didn't love and then went on her way, was influenced by that time and created her own, her own, again, I, I say brand because that's my fallback. That's what I always go to as brand when I, when I consider that. I think there's two elements to the Dakota Jackson brand, right? You, you have the industrialist side where you, you have the furniture, you have the company, you have the business, you have the showroom, you, you, have, you have the tangible elements, and then you have the artistic, the magical, the experiential side of it. And, and from a legacy standpoint, you, know, you can have one without the other. And I'm just curious where you think history falls and the other side of that from a from a business and practical side of it to make a business like this last longer there are partnerships that are done very similar to how your partnership with Steinway for example right is that something that you would ever do is create a partnership with other designers who would influence your brand you know, uh, if we uh, probably the most successful that I'm aware of in that area would be Christian Lieg. Uh And, uh, you know, the vote's not in yet. So he's out of the company. Uh, I believe, and I'm not fully knowledgeable about it, but I believe that a former... Uh, designer in his company is now handling that end of it uh, we're watching a company that's going in uh, that's experiencing a great deal of expansion and whether that expansion is happening through the fundamentals of the growth of a business or the investment at this point in the growth I have no idea uh, and I, I can't be critical of Lieg in any way. He's, uh, he's certainly a master. Uh, where that showroom goes and its relevance, uh, I, don't, I don't have any idea. That is a wrap on this conversation with uh, the one and only Dakota Jackson. Thank you, Dakota. I really enjoyed it, and I appreciate the time. And thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for downloading, subscribing, and reaching out to us on social. Without you, there is no convo by design. So thank you for listening, and until next week, keep creating. Convo by Design is proud to be working with Vendôme Furniture. Their design culture is the key to their success. It's what pushes them to consistently create new collections that give spaces a new dimension. They create dialogue between environment and form. Vendôme pieces can transform the simplest space into one filled with glamour that is both unique and extraordinary. And isn't that what design is all about? creating atmospheres where you can take hold of life and enjoy it to the fullest. Vendôme products are simple and elegant, contemporary and exceptionally comfortable. Their crafted modern durable molded resin, glass, and metal designs are unique. They beg to be enjoyed. Have you seen them featured in our videos? Check out our YouTube channel and see this for yourself. You can also find them in their showrooms at the D&D Building in New York, Wynwood in Miami, and the Pacific Design Center here in Los Angeles, or online at vendôme.com. 